0: And at the time, I had a friend who worked as a researcher in our research group, and his life seemed a lot easier than my life. He was on helicopters that crashed into the sea, and he didn't have to, to wear a tie to work, and he didn't have to sit on a train, and he had very open hours. And so over the Christmas period, the end of 2013, a job appeared, uh, and I was very decidedly not qualified for this job, but I thought, why not? I'll try. All they can say is no, right? Um, I wish I knew what the original job ad was, but it was to work on doing streaming video. There's probably some idea about internet and, and transport protocols, but it all probably meant nothing to me at all. And so, yeah, it looked like a much nicer life than working for an oil and gas company.
1: and FreeBSD developer that works on improving the core protocols that drive the internet. He is a contributor to the open standards in the IETF and is enthusiastic about using FreeBSD as a platform to experiment with new networking ideas as they progress towards standardization. Tom, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today.
0: Oh, no problem at all.
1: So we have just recently started to get to know each other. Um, you have come on board with BSD now to help host the show. So thank you for that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, this is the first time we've spoken. It's actually nice to to hear your voice rather than just see messages. Um I think it's, uh, it's it's worth thanking you for actually all the work you do in, in production and editing. It's the the, the harder part, well, uh, but it's less visible.
1: Uh, is it harder? I don't know. You guys have to have all the knowledge in your head to then read the stories and you know rattle off all the intricate details that people want to know. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that it's about equal. It's a team effort, and uh, I, th- I think we can <laughs> go with that. So I wanted to start by asking. Uh, was technology something you were always interested in when you were younger or did that come later as you reached your teens and then into your twenties? Um, I guess it's
0: sort of a hard question to answer. There are people that, uh, have stories where they are, you know, they're like a five-year-old and they were always taking apart remotes and rebuilding things. And I don't think I was like that. I actually find this sort of story is maybe alienating. It, it builds this myth that, uh, to be a technologist it is like cast into your blood, and you know from the beginning that you are going to do this. Um, and I don't think that was the case for me. I I did, as part of my uh, high school education, The we did like a two-week module on programming um, when I was maybe 14 years old. That's the, all the education we got on programming. And it was one of these things that I touched and I was just immediately understood what what was going on. Uh, I'd never had that experience before where I, I took to something so quickly. And that sort of sent me into the path of of. Wanting wanted to study computer science and learn more about computers and how they work. And until then, I'd had basically no exposure. Uh, obviously, you know, computer games and, and, and playing with stuff like that, but no exposure to how things actually worked on the inside.
1: Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're from Scotland, correct? Yes. Okay. So is that is that a standard thing that happens in high school, that there's that period where your modular course or whatever that you go through? Or was that something that was just specific to your school?
0: Um, so the, the education system, when I went through it in, in secondary education, so it's... it's um, it covers your last six years of, of, uh, your education. Um, you would do like a single track of education where everyone would be exposed to everything. And then you would select subjects. And so your third and fourth year you're doing, there's a core set of subjects you have to do, and then there's some extra stuff. And so I had chosen computer science and I don't, I don't know why it, you, you end up doing maybe 10 different subjects. And so you don't necessarily have that, that strong a binding to them. Uh, th- this is very fortuitous for me. It is definitely different now. There are loads of um, programming initiatives for for children from very young ages, and so I imagine exposure would happen much earlier now. But at that point, no one no one told me you could program a computer. You just kind of discovered it
1: while you were while you were going through the class. Yeah,
0: they just they you know we had this two week module where we wrote Visual Basic, and and that is where they said, oh yeah, these these computers that you can use, this is how how you program them. This is what people are doing. Uh, and and until then, I mean, I think a lot of subjects have this this issue with education where. Uh, You can go and study to become a a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, Um, but unless you have been exposed to these fields as a young person, you don't know they really exist. Now, TV helps actually for part of this, but I don't know how anyone has a view of what a a computer programmer does day to day, because you're not really going to get that exposure in school. Uh, And so I was just very lucky that I I saw this and I was instantly hooked.
1: Yeah, I always think it's interesting because, like, like you mentioned, you have to have exposure to something. To, to know, like, hey, that could be something I'm interested in. But another thing that I've found is you kind of have to not just have exposure, but also understanding of, like, the trajectory to get there. Um, like, you know, when I was younger, like most kids my age, you know, we always thought that it would be great to be an astronaut. Like, we knew we would like that, but we had obviously no idea, well, what are the steps you even take to get that to that point? Um, I think it's great that schools nowadays are getting into the, you know, like the way that yours did, uh, giving kids exposure to all these different things to then kind of letting them choose. But I think also those of us that work in those separate fields, I think sometimes there's some more we can do to explain, like, how do you get from point A to point B? Like you have an interest, but then how do you go with it from there?
0: Yeah, and, and maybe part of that's what's missing in the the STEM and the STEAM initiatives. The the big point with the, the STEM initiatives is not to really pull people into the fields, but to just expose them so they know that they exist. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that happens gets criticism because it's not representative. Um, if you've ever done the, there's a science center just down the road from me here, and they, they do when they're open, like uh, a human computer thing, where you tell someone using very precise instructions to make a jam sandwich. Uh, so, you know, two slices of bread, some jam, put them together and you have a sandwich. And obviously the, the person performing really plays up for this. And so they will rub the sandwich on themselves or put their hands in the jam. They do all these silly things. Um, that's not intended to teach someone how to be an engineer and get them to be, you know, subscribing to university in, in 10 years' time. It's just to show them that there's more to the world and there's directions for your curiosity and there's more directions that you can look in. Uh, I think we're maybe we're doing a good job, but we'll find out if we're doing well at this in 10 years. And that's the problem with initiatives that aim at children is you <laughs> the massive cycle time before you find out if you're doing the right thing or not.
1: Yeah, so on the, on the issue of, of education... Um, when did you decide what university you were going to go to and then exactly what you wanted to specialize in? Or was that just kind of like, uh, you just kind of picked one and then went with what sounded good?
0: Uh, I, I decided I wanted to go and study computer science. And so I looked at the universities that do computer science in, in Scotland. Um, the way university is funded in Scotland is that you do not pay any fees um, as long as you're attending university in Scotland. And so the, the government actually covers a, a nominal charge. So there is a listed charge but. The government covers that. And so I had a choice of the universities in Scotland. There, There's a university, uh, well, a mile from my parents' house, which is where I ended up going. Uh, and I applied to University of Aberdeen, where, where I studied, and some other universities in Scotland. Um, but the, the financial situation made it look like the best option was to stay in my hometown. And so I stayed in my hometown. And it worked out okay. Anyway, it was a, as good an education as you get anywhere. Okay.
1: So was... University where you first got exposed to the concept of open source or did that come later?
0: Ah, no much earlier um, so okay after being exposed to writing visual basic I decided I, I wanted to to go and lear- learn these computer things and I, I Started to put in maybe maybe deliberate effort. I think maybe the second time it came around I, I really set my mind on doing this and so I convinced my parents to get me a, a laptop and I ended up getting a G4 iBook uh, and then I started learning more about what what is this computer thing. And at the time, Apple had these uh, notices on their product pages about their Macintoshes running Unix. Like, it's this powerful Unix system underneath. And in the, the library in the city, they had all these Unix books. And so I must have, like, read every Learn Unix in 24 Hours book that came by. Uh, and I went through an absolute ton of these. And from those, uh, I, I became exposed to, to Linux and Linux started to be the thing that was documented more in the books, and so I started to look at what Linux was and how it worked because it was actually closer to the Unix being described in these Unix books because they weren't really Unix books; they were books on Red Hat, uh, and they were they were very old. Um, and so that's what that that that's the sort of thing that that hooked me. I think I uh, ordered a Ubuntu, uh, I guess two thousand and six six point oh four a C D from Canonical, which they they sent me for free. Uh I think it came after like six months. So I I was burning CDs and experimenting with stuff other anyway. Um but yeah so I it was it was actually just I, I think it was through having a, a computer of my own as a place to experiment and then learning there was more to it and wanting to learn more about what what the things were.
1: Okay. So the obvious question then leads from that of you kind of started with Linux. When did FreeBSD come into the picture and how did you make that jump or why did you make that jump?
0: I I don't know if you ever uh used a PowerPC uh computer.
1: I have recently, so, uh, but I didn't back then.
0: <laughs> so a uh, uh, a PowerPC uh, a PowerPC iBook in like 2006, 2007, just as they're doing the Intel swap that which I didn't know was coming was was an interesting place to be. So Software on macOS is software on macOS, and support's gotten a lot a lot, a lot better than it used to be. Uh, on PowerPC, you didn't really have the option of anything like Wine. You didn't have the option of virtualization. Uh, you were really locked into the this, this stuff that was written and developed for Apple platforms. And if you started to ru- try and run open source software, you had the same sort of problems. The best Linux distribution for the iBook I had was uh, a Slackware spin called Slackintosh. Okay. And out of the box, the, the Slackintosh could uh, the, the Wi-Fi didn't work, but it would do suspend and resume, and there was audio, and it drive the hibernate light properly. Like all of these things worked really well. Um, so if you think about what Ubuntu is today and what Slackware is, you know philosophically, uh, a Slackware distribution being best supported is true. Like Ubuntu did not run well on that laptop. Uh, the touchpad driver didn't work, so you had to slide like a hundred times to get across the screen. Um, and so, because I was in this little niche, I, I was very open to looking at other stuff. I was very open to looking at anything that would work. And because I was in a niche, I was also forced to learn things very quickly. And so, I think I did a, a build of of Gentoo uh, at some point, which was not enjoyable at all. I don't know why anybody. I still, still to this day, don't understand why people enjoy building ports on FreeBSD. I don't. There must be something better you could do with your computer. Um, so I was exposed to Gentoo. Um after uh, Slackware, probably OpenBSD was the best supported operating system I tried on the hardware. FreeBSD's PowerPC support wasn't very good. At the time, it was missing things like um, the drivers for the keyboard. And so the first uh, external keyboard I ever bought myself was so I could try FreeBSD on, on the iBook. And I decided this was too much hassle to not have a usable laptop. Um, and so that gave me exposure to running Different operating systems, also operating systems other than Linux, because I was actually very willing to try something very cut down because I had a very slow computer and I had to compile a lot of software myself, no matter what I did, because it was PowerPC and nobody packaged software for PowerPC.
1: You you have your your PowerBook system that you're using. At what point did you kind of transition from? And I don't know when this when this took place. So you have to you have to enlighten me when you went from just a passive consumer of. What other people had done downloading software, compiling it and running it to submitting uh, bug reports or features or actual code? Like, when did the transition happen from user to, I guess you could say, community member where you were supplying something of value back to upstream?
0: So I was was using this machine at the start of university. And when I started university, they gave me a laptop because they had a a sponsored industry program. And so I stopped using the iBook because it was very old. Um, the laptop they gave me was a 17-inch ThinkPad, which was not great, a great portable computer. And so I replaced three different computers and eventually ended up with a, a MacBook Air. And I went and did other things for a long time. And it, it wasn't until I started working at the, the University of Aberdeen um, after I'd graduated in 2014 that uh, contributing back to software became um, something that was the norm for the environment. Um when I started working at the university, we were working on a project that was trying to do streaming video for people in rural areas. We had like a big funding project for this, uh, and it was interdisciplinary. and the The social scientist involved was a, a bit slow getting started up, and so we had some extra time. and One of my colleagues had been working on implementation of a, an enhancement to TCP called New Cwv, um, and this is just uh, it makes. Uh, like streaming video work better maybe because it guesses about congestion control and they'd implemented this for linux but as part of standardization it's good to have more implementations because it shows that this idea is more viable um, and they thought about doing a port to bsd uh but nobody knew how to do this and nobody had time but i had time because we were sort of just waiting around and okay i didn't know how to do it but i thought i could try and do it uh and that was the first thing that i i worked on that was uh the first thing I worked on, actually, I tried to contribute back to the community. And it was very explicitly like, I've just had this amazing opportunity for my employer to work on FreeBSD. No one, no one's going to get this. This is great. Uh, and so I, I jumped on it and started working on that.
1: So how did you end up at the university?
0: And so I, after I left university, I went and worked for uh, a big uh, systems integration company. And then uh, I came back to Aberdeen and worked in oil and gas. Uh, doing doing weird things. It was a very strange job. And at the time I had a friend who worked as a research assistant in our research group and his life seemed a lot easier than my life. He was on helicopters that crash into the sea and he didn't have to, to wear a tie to work and he didn't have to sit on a train. He had very open hours. And so over the Christmas period, the end of 2013, a job appeared uh, and I was very decidedly not qualified for this job, but I thought, why not? I'll, I'll try All they can say is no, right? Um, I wish I knew what the original job ad was, but it was to work on doing streaming video. There's probably some idea about internet and, and transport protocols, but it's all probably meant nothing to me at all. And so, yeah, it looked like a much nicer life than working for an oil and gas company. And it turns out I stepped out of the oil and gas industry just before a downturn. So
1: you work on this project um you work on getting those the standardization and getting it into freebsd how how well received was it from the freebsd community was it was it looked was were people excited that it was coming in or
0: it wasn't received at all by the freebsd community um there are there are things that you can do that will have a a large audience so if you were to come by and say oh i fix suspend and resume on every laptop in the world with this this small patch everyone's going to be really excited um if you came along and said, I'm not really sure what I'm doing, but I think I figured out how to fix some thing in the memory system, people are going to be less excited, because fewer people will know what you're talking about. Uh, and the people that know what you're talking about are very busy, because there's very few of them. And they are terrified of change. And that's the case of the TCP stack. It's uh, The FreeBSD TCP stack is very performant, It's very stable, and it is very, very complex. And so it's very difficult to come and integrate any TCP modification to anything. There's always a very difficult balance of things that happens. Um, and I hit the point where there was nobody really publicly working on the TCP stack. Um, there might have been other stuff going on inside Netflix at the time, but Netflix was sort of the main contributor. And so I spoke to Adrian Chad a little bit, and we talked about patches. but. No, everyone's scared to work on this area in the kernel. And so new CWV has never landed in FreeBSD. We've, we've updated it a few times and we've done some other things. Uh, I'm sure if we tried to do it now, it would be quite straightforward to get it in, but it would take a lot of time to be sure that the changes worked and did not cause any disadvantages when they, when they were merged. Um, and we thought we had done that uh, this year when we brought in PRR, but we actually just unearthed bug after bug after bug. And Richard's done a great job bringing that in, but... This is a really difficult machine to work on. Um, as an outsider, this is really hard to tell. If you were to try and pitch a project to commit to open source inside a company, and you said, "Oh, we're going to develop this modification, then we'll submit it upstream," and then it might be accepted, and if it is accepted, it might be accepted in ten years' time, you're probably not going to you're not going to get a project through. Like that's not a it's not a great end to your story. Instead, um, you need to figure out how to do this. Uh, sadly, only being involved in the community is the way to figure out how to do it.
1: So then how did you make the leap from, you know, working on this code with the hopes of, of getting it upstream to then actually becoming part of the project and working on the code in the project? Because there seems to be a gap between those two things. So I'm, I'm assuming there's a story there.
0: Yeah, yeah, and there is. And so if, if anybody is listening and they, they want to pitch this project to their employer to bring things into open source, uh, I can tell you that from the Linux kernel and from FreeBSD, the way you do this is... You go to a conference and you meet people. You convince them that you are smart enough and you exist. And then the path will be very smooth. You can have a conversation and say, we we had a, a pint and we talked about this. And you can find the right people. Um, and the path for me to come into the project was sort of twofold. Um, I was at the ITF meeting in Prague. Um, it was my first ITF meeting. Uh, my boss stood me up for lunch. And I saw uh, Michael Tuxen, who's a previous committer, who is a uh, on a EU project that was funding me to be there. Uh, but So I knew him in a different way, not FreeBSD related. And he was having lunch with um, Jonathan Looney and Lawrence Stewart, and I think a third person, uh, and they invited me to come along. I said, oh, I've been sued up. And so I had lunch that day with uh, Jonathan and, and Michael and Lawrence, and we talked about TCP and we talked about these part these patches. Um, that same year, I complained quite loudly that... There wasn't a lot of notice going on for the, the, the FreeBSD stuff that was happening in the UK because there was occasionally FreeBSD stuff happening in London, but it'd be like three days notice. And I was like, well, you know, I live uh, 12 hours away. I'd like just uh, like a little bit more notice. I'll, I'll come along and join things. And from there, uh, Sevan, who's a member of the FreeBSD project and the NetBSD project does lots of documentation stuff, invited me to the BSD CAM Dev Summit in Cambridge later that year. And so I went to BSD Cam and, and Jonathan was there and, and we spoke. Uh, and so this is how I got into the community. I met the people in the community and they, they saw I was a real person and I was engaged and I, and I wanted to do things. Uh, and that is that is the way you come in. And it's really sad to say this because, you know, right now we can't go anywhere or really do anything. So I don't know what the solution is. Um, and it's not it's not a very scalable answer either because you need to be personable enough to, to get on with people and you might not need this if everything you do is over email, but maybe there's a different way where you come and join the FreeBSD Discord and that's how you get into the project. Um, the, the story is always like people submit patches and eventually you say, no, we're sick of this. You just you just commit things. And that's true in some areas. I mean, that'd be true if you were working on grammar and documentation, something that doesn't need a real really solid technical view to look at. But if your patches were... Working on 802.11ac, then there are two people in the FreeBSD project that could work on this, uh, I, th- I think. And if neither of those two people have time, then your patches will just sit there until they need them uh, or until you, I don't know, they just sit there forever. How beneficial
1: was it for you that when you joined the project that there were you know other developers that were willing to kind of mentor you through the, the issues and the code that you were tackling?
0: So my my mentor's positions were that they were there to be a, a check that I wasn't bringing anything bad into the project, rather than um, what can be made by mentoring where it is like a nurturing process. They basically saying, like, we think you're competent. We just need to show that you're not going to make a mess of the tree. And so there wasn't a lot of uh, like raw guidance from there. Now, there could have been. I could easily have asked for for lots of help, and I'm sure they would have provided it. They're also very busy people. Um so that aspect's not really available. It might be enough for other people. There are definitely developers that will take people into the project this way. Uh, instead, I find that the, the wider community, so once you once you go to a developer summit or once you go to a BSD conference and you've met some people, you find out that all of these people really want to speak to you. Because if, if you have found a bug and you can fix the bug, then one, the bug gets fixed and two, they don't have to do it. And so everybody loves someone else doing their work for them. No one's ever said, oh no, don't do that for me. Oh, I, 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 want, I want to do that. Everyone's always really happy. And so, um, well, it might, well, my description before might have sounded like this is a bit insular. It's it's hard to break into and it can be difficult to get attention on yourself in a positive way through the internet. But once people have met you in person, they will jump all over any changes you have. Uh, and the, I guess the big thing is to just not be shy and to try and push yourself to be invited to things. Uh, I, I would happily, if, if anybody listening wants to be involved in the FreeBSD project, I'm happy to speak to them. I'm not gonna say I have time to help them but uh, myself, but I will definitely direct anybody that wanted to be involved in FreeBSD towards people that will help them. And I would, I would expect almost every FreeBSD developer to do that because we know the project gets stronger with more contributors and we get more ideas and we get more diversity and it just raises, raises everything up. It's always better to have more people involved.
1: It's one of the things I love about the open source community and open source projects is the people working on them actually genuinely care about the project itself and it growing and it becoming stronger unlike some software projects at you know corporations well it's it's a nine to five job they're clocking in they don't really care about the software they're just earning a paycheck on the open source side there's definitely actually a desire and a passion for the project
0: yeah and and it's it's always great i mean i i've been through several communities like this in my life where basically everyone you meet is like a pre-made friend like even if even if you just met them for the first time you you have enough things in common, or enough context that you, you'll get on really well, and it can be really interesting going to the pub and there being like a you know, hundred people there that you've you've never met, and you just start talking to somebody at a table and you get on, you get on like you've known each other for ten years, uh, because the the commonality is there around the project, and so you can come from very diverse like backgrounds and be very different people, but you always have this nice shared shared concept, and you want to be friendly with the people in the project because there's very little animosity. I thought it was very funny that Michael Lucas managed to write a, a murder story about an open source project because, well, it seems like there's all this uh, uh, bitter outrage on the outside. In the end, people in person are just fine.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've been fascinated by where Michael Lucas comes up with a lot of his material because, I mean, you know, just you could just pull up the list of books that he's written and you're going to find one that's like, wait, wh- where did that idea come from? Um so would you say that's one of the the key things that you like about FreeBSD is the community aspect?
0: Yeah. So for me, I've not done a lot of FreeBSD development uh, in the last year because work has been quite busy, but I still try my best to be involved in the community because if I can't put in the, I don't know, 40 hours a month it takes to actually be progressing a, a software project, I can instead put in less time and do something where I'm, I'm quite a, a sociable person. I'm quite outgoing. So it's, it's not an ordeal for me to force 20 people onto a, a, onto a Google Meet and we'll wor- work through the bug tracker. I can do that. It It's not gonna burn me out in the way it might, might, be, might do for some other people. And it's not gonna be a lot of anxiety. I, I can do that. And so I'm not going to do the, the things I want to do as much, but at least I feel like I can contribute back. And that, I think that is the core for any community is you have to recognize that the community is made of people and it's made by the people in the community. Um, and I, I, wrote, I, wrote, uh, I wrote an article for the FreeBSD Journal, which I never gave them, about how you can like form up communities. Um, and I don't know if you know, but I ran a, a virtualized hacker camp uh, just this last weekend. The reason I ran the non-virtualized hacker camp the first time is that I wanted to go to one and there wasn't one. And so I ran it. And that and that is this, the spirit of open source, right? I want this software, but it's not there. So I'll just make it you can do the same for for lots of things, and this is why I really enjoy being involved in the i t f and enjoyed in the the chaos computer club in Germany because they do these large events the i t f is only the people that's at the i t f there's nothing there's nothing more there's the people that book the rooms, but the people that book the rooms are very rarely like technical people they're amazing at the administration, but they're not there technically they're just giving you an empty hall and you make something happen inside there and I think that is the 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 core thing for all these communities is that you come and you say. I want the community to do this thing. And if it's something the community feels like they should do, no one will stand in your way. That'd be very helpful. Everyone is, help, everyone is always happy to have their burdens lifted like this.
1: So I actually think you just answered my, my next question, which was, you know, what, what's one thing that stands out to you the most from your experiences in, in the open source community? So let me, let me pivot at, off of what you said and ask with respect to any of the BSDs or just open source in general. Are there things that you see that are being developed, either code or community things, uh, that get you really excited and encouraged for the future?
0: Um I think I think maybe there's been there, there's there's so much integration with industry that it, it's hard to tell what is coming mm-hmm. from the open source projects and what is actually just coming from from sponsored work. Um the the stuff that's happening with risk 5 is very interesting to me because it is uh the open source approach taken to to hardware I'm very excited to see that not necessarily risk 5 win I don't, I don't really have a horse in any of these races but I'm very excited to see that uh documentation become available for hardware so it can be supported well and freebsd is you know we we're the first first major operating system to have a port um, um and we we try very hard to be involved in these communities, um, but yeah, it's it's so difficult to to dis like disentangle what is actually a commercial project. Um, I think the distinction is almost gone now. I don't think you'd see any big major commercial success that wasn't built on top of open source, and the open source successes are now very frequently are big. They're big successes because somebody has thrown a marketing budget behind it. Because that's what Docker Hub is. Is a it's a cool open source project, but with a marketing budget, and it's closed. But.
1: So from your experience and what you've, what you've done in FreeBSD, are there things that you have learned along the way that prior to having those experiences you never would have considered? I, I,
0: I, I, working in FreeBSD made it very clear how narrow my computer science education was. Um, when you become a, a committer, you get subscribed to the source commits all mailing list and you get every commit that comes through. And that is a daunting thing to see because you see uh, the breadth of experience from everyone coming by. And so you see changes in every part of the operating system, parts of the operating system you didn't know existed. Um, And what I really got from this, though, was watching people make commits and then revert them and people make mistakes and then fail or break the builds. And it was really... um, Powerful for me to see because I've only really worked at small companies or in small teams. See that the best engineers in the world are humans and they're making mistakes and they're happy to do this in public. And a lot of the time, people who have committed a mistake are very gracious about being told that they have made a flaw. They're not, if they're angry, they're not angry at the person reporting, they're angry because, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. I should have, I should have tried better. Um, and I, it's a great thing to see. And it's uh, truly a gem of open source to see people. Be honest and work in public uh, in ways that are locked away. Um, I I don't think we've had any big security vulnerabilities that have needed postmortems, but I'm sure if we did, we would have a a very nice public procedure where we could talk about what we actually did wrong and how things were missed in the process. Um, And I know that that is something which companies are getting better about doing, but open source projects can just do inherently.
1: I think in a way that while not necessarily a vulnerability the uh the recent stuff with wireguard and freebsd showed that the project does not have a problem going okay let's let's stop let's reanalyze let's make sure we're getting this right um and i don't mean to just you know particularly focus on that issue but i think it shows that at the end of the day the project wants what's best for the project it's not just we want to push down this road no matter what it's going to
0: cost yeah i i think so um I I find that FreeBSD has a problem of being a a little too conservative and landing things turned off. I'm not sure if WireGuard landed turned off, but it it was landed and then left alone. Um, And I think that was the structure of the project that that backed it up from um, NetGate. Um, And then when people started looking at this, they started finding the the, the issues with it and they started revealing more problems uh, and it started getting the attention it deserved. And I think a large part of the, for the WireGuard in particular, a large part of the problem is it's very popular. And so people were just happy to see it arrived. Like, oh, cool. People will stop moaning at us now. Um, and it was good to see that we could just do a hard stop and we could decide that the upstream uh, governance model was not a government's model we could stick with, and instead we have to do something very different. It'll be interesting to see how successful that is over time. But it's really good to see that the project be like, no, just, no, we'll just back this up. We're just. We, we we can't we can't handle drama around us right now, it's too much. And we can instead focus on what we're trying to do, which is to get the operating system out the door, which was getting thirteen out of the door. And thirteen went I think with the normal amount of delay. I don't think there was a huge delay for thirteen, so I think everything went well. And I think now we're actually getting um WireGuard as an external module seeing reasonable use. And so yeah, I think I think that's actually a very good example of um how dynamic an open source project can be and how willing it can be to adapt to things. And I think a company that had invested a lot of money might not have been able to respond this way.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because I just had another conversation where we were talking about uh, project management and how in many ways the kind of the external view of project management is you need a very rigid structure. It's well planned out and well thought out. But in reality, and practice, there has to be a lot of flexibility to adjust according to how things change dynamically. Um, so it's always it's always a joy to see when any project and, you know, not just specifically FreeBSP, but when any project can start with a plan and then realize, OK, we have to adjust because the goal that we want is still correct, is is still what we're going for. But the path to get there, we might have to adjust so that we can
0: achieve it. I, I love the idea that people think project management is rigid. I mean, OK, what's the, the simplest project you can think of uh, taking the kids to the park? You're going to take some children to the park and you put a tight deadline on that. You're suddenly going to find that your, your project management is all over the place. It's, uh, it took four times as long to put the shoes on. Um, yeah, maybe people have some strange views about how the world should work. But I, always, I think I, it's the <laughs>
1: difference between people that have done project management and people that just think they know how it works. I think it, I think it breaks down to that because I think intuitively you, you think or people can think that, okay, well, yeah, you make a plan and then you follow the plan. And that sounds good on paper when you're only thinking of it that deep. But then when you actually get into the process of doing it, you realize, oh, no, that looked good on paper. But reality is something entirely different. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I, I have loads of examples as well that pull this through. I think one of my favorite ones is you probably never thought about how long it takes you to get dressed or to get changed, like from one outfit to another. Uh, And I think if you tried to put that into a plan for a project and you said like, okay, now we will get changed. Uh, you'd be like, okay, well, a minute. How long does it take to, to put shoes on and stuff? You suddenly find that it actually takes you seven minutes. And that is now you've, you've just lost everything. Everything has fallen apart. You've gone seven times over what your initial estimate was. And I think once you are exposed to projects and, and time, you see that, yeah, okay, we can guess, uh, but it's not going to work. We can just guess. Um... Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so when you were answering a, a prior question, you talked about how when you joined the mailing list, you kind of, you understood how narrow um, your view and understanding was, were there, were there other things that you wish you had known before you had gotten into the field that you know now, or you think that had you known it then you would have been better able to, to manage things?
0: Uh, I, I think always that I wish I'd be more willing to experiment and fail. Um, you seeing, uh, you know, the real senior project members make mistakes and, and try things is, is great and all. Uh, the reason that they have the ability to work in diverse areas across an entire operating system is because they're just not scared to try things and fail. They're not scared to uh, make a stab at something and, and, and push and see if they can get through or not. Uh, and I think all of our, our progresses, developers and our progress as people come from the things that we tried to do and we failed to do and then how we react to what that situation is. Uh, and I wish when I was younger, I had realized that I didn't have to be great at everything. And I think the internet is a big confounding factor in this. When you can see a, a 14-year-old on the top of Hacker News that has written their own multitasking operating system, and you're like, but I've not even opened the Intel Assembly book yet. That That's really disheartening. And instead, you should be willing to accept that you just don't know everything and you maybe try to not be good at things. So
1: um, that, I guess that, that kind of answers the next question, which I was going to ask, which is Uh, What would be advice that you would give someone else who is wanting to get into it? Um, So are there other things that kind of pop into mind along that line?
0: So something I've been doing uh, this year is I've been painting and I've been taking photographs. And these are two hobbies I have that I am deliberately trying not to get very good at. I'm not not saying I'm trying to be bad at this, but I understand what the the bar is. I, I see how high you can reach and I'm just not trying. I'm just trying to get the enjoyment from this. Uh, I, I've been involved in uh, hackerspaces and communities for a long time, and I see people come in with ideas for, for projects. Um, and what you need to understand is not what the idea is, but what the thing you are trying to do is. Your idea might be that you want to build this big fancy dashboard that looks really cool, but the thing you want to do is actually, I want to learn how to program some LEDs. And, and that is the sort of thing where you can approach a project and you don't actually know where you will be satisfied on this point. But you get to the point you're like, oh, cool. I learned how to program LEDs. That's the thing I really want. And then you can stop. And this will make you more willing to try things. So you don't have to be good at stuff. In fact, it's, it's better if you're bad at stuff. If you do something and you try really hard and you don't do very well at it, and somebody comes and explains how you can do it better, you've just gotten like a, a million pounds worth of knowledge for free. You've gotten the experience of trying and not doing well and then some insight. And that's what you want. That's how you, how you learn and how you grow. It's much faster this way. Suffering is the is the is is the quicker way to to learn how to do the things. Yeah.
1: So there's Uh, the old joke that I've heard with uh, Stack Overflow, where if you really want to know how to do something, go on Stack Overflow, state your problem. Then with a new account, state the wrong way to do it. And instantly you'll have 15 other people respond. No, no, no. no. This is how you want to fix that problem. And then now you've just gotten exposed to a whole bunch of new ideas.
0: Yeah, that's that's one way to do it. But uh, I I invest a lot of my emotional state in how people are to me on the Internet. And I think I just get really sad.
1: So, what do you think is something that we as a community both community members and developers um aren't focused on that we should be is there anything that comes to mind uh,
0: I, I don't know about focus we're we're not good enough at taking burdens from people um i i want more people to run events so that i can go to events i don't want to run events um there's a big problem with saying like patch is welcome to any problem as a way of sort of dismissing people because It's easy to shout from the sidelines to say things should get better. I think I've proven that I will happily run events and do things. Um, There are very specific cases. I ran, you know, four or five bugathons in the last year for FreeBSD. I just tried to close some bugs. It's it's really simple. Um, What you need to do to run a -a bugathon, you need to send an email and you need to show up. That's it. That's all you need to do. Um, These events could be run by anyone and there's tons of events like this and they could be run by anyone. Um, And we see other people do these things and we come to their events. But what we don't do is we don't try and lift the burden from them. We don't say, "I really enjoyed this. Would you like help running it? I'm happy to run another one this time." And I don't know why, because the the worst thing is they say, "No, actually, I, this is my my baby, and I am really happy looking after it." Um and you go, "Okay, cool. Well, I'll try something else." Like, yeah, ideas are, ideas are easy. I've got ideas. You can have some. Um, but we need to we need to stop being so dependent on the people that are willing to do things, making them keep doing them. I did a, an interview in the, the CCC News Show because it was running a conference, uh, and I told them their, their show is to sit until they can have physical events again. I told them, you need to plan for the end because you don't want to do this forever because it'll just wear you down. Whereas you can decide after 10 episodes if you want to do another 10. You can decide after at 50 if you want to do up to episode 60, but you can't just sign up to do this forever because it will burn you out and you'll, you'll lose things. Um And we can protect our communities from these burnout by just spreading the load out a bit. You can have four people organize the event. Between the four of you you can write the email and send it. One of you is responsible to be there this month. One of you is responsible to be there next month. And you just need to figure out where the responsibility lies and and how you can help make things easier so that it doesn't absorb everyone's life and you can just make things easier for the others. I
1: think a key point here, and it's something that I always try to be clear about when i 'm talking with people that aren 't aren 't developers but are community members is that there is so much that you can do to help a project that doesn 't require you sitting down writing actual code. There are so many ways that people can pitch in and aid and give benefit to the project that aren 't just writing software
0: yeah and that that comes back right like to, to me saying that while you might have an idea of what your project is, um, the thing that will satisfy you might just be completely different and so Maybe you do want to work on FreeBSD, but it turns out you don't understand how pointers work and you've never figured out how to, to type uh, the build arguments to get an operating system out. But you can um, you can get people to come to a user group and see a speaker you've arranged. And you've done something that other people can't do because not everyone can do this. Um, as an as outgoing person, this feels very easy to me. And I've had to learn to recognize that it's very hard for other people to do it. And so if this is really hard for you to do, then that's okay. Some things are really hard for me to do. I can't write PHP, uh, so I can't help there. Um, and you can help in other areas. And I'd love more people to just show up and say, I want to try some stuff. I want to help you out. Um, and there's very easy ways to do this. And we can always do with more, more community more community groups. Uh, unless, of course, you have two in your city already, then you're probably okay. But if you don't have one, you can start one. And if it's just you and three of your friends, it's still more than nothing because then eventually you grow from there, right? Not everything starts with a hundred people, and I really needs to have a hundred people.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think that's a good spot to end on, Tom. I've uh, I've appreciated you taking the time to talk with me today, and it's been great actually getting a face-to-face with you, and I, uh, I look forward to working with you on BSD Now.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great to speak to you, and I'm I really, really appreciative of the work you are, are putting into the BSD community, keeping BSD Now going. I, I genuinely think the show would struggle without a strong hand in production, and, and you're offering something which is very valuable to the community.
1: But like I said, it's a team effort, so we'll both take the credit. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Tom.